welcome to the podcast of Apostles by the Sea Anglican Church in Rosemary Beach, Florida. You can find out more about us on our website at ApostlesByTheSea.com. Thanks for listening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. And at this time, we'd like to invite our children to go into kids' church with my awesome wife, Ashley. All right, I just want to let you know before we get started that we save our special chairs, our trick chairs, <laughs> just for Ben. He's the only one that gets them. We find out where he's going to sit and we put them there in advance just for him. Sorry about that. Everybody else's chair should be just fine. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> well, good morning, church. It's great to be here with you in worship. Today we hear two of my favorite parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And in these parables, together with the one that we didn't read, the one that comes after it, the parable of the lost son and his prodigal father, in these parables we are given a glimpse into heaven and even a glimpse into the very heart of God. And the thing is, I've said this before, but it bears repeating, I really believe that the image that we have of God, what we think of when we think of God, might be the most important thing about us. The image we have of God might be the most important thing about us because it shapes who we are, who we become, how we relate to each other, and how we relate to God. Because think about this. If your God is not much more than an abstract idea, if your God is something like a force, like in Star Wars, anybody like Star Wars? Okay, I threw this out there just for my son and for his friend back there. Uh, but a force that pervades everything. If this is kind of what your idea of God is, just an abstract force, not a personal being, then what does it mean to say that people are made in God's image? How can people be made in the image of something that is not personal? How will you relate to them? Will they just be things to be used in your world? Things to be manipulated or studied? but of no more significance than any other object? Or if your God is a taskmaster, a cruel overlord who always demands more than we can do, who demands his pound of flesh, then how will you relate to other people? Won't you also be demanding and cruel and evil-tempered? Or if your God is watching everything you do and measuring you all the time, if your God is a bean counter God, always noting how you don't measure up, always watching with disapproval, how will you act toward other people? How will you act toward yourself? With disapproval? With judgment? With accusations? What we think of when we think of God is one of the most important things, yet so often our image of God is distorted. And it's often been distorted, I'm sorry to say, by the church and by teachers and by people in authority or by our parents or our pastors or whatever. But here's what we know about God. The thing is, God doesn't leave us uh, without clues to what he's like. As a matter of fact, he tells us exactly what he's like. He looks like Jesus. And in fact, when he wanted to tell us, when he wanted to make a full self-disclosure of himself to us, so we would know who he's like, what he's like. He chose to come to us as a helpless child who then grew into a man, a man who worked with his hands, a man who palled around with his friends, a man who loved deeply, a man who healed people and fed them and listened to them and taught them, a man who knew our hearts 
and who chose to share his table with sinners and bring in those who had been left out. A man who, instead of striking down his enemies, allowed himself to be struck down in their place. This is how God chose to make himself known to us. What do you think of when you think of God? Do you think of a great cosmic force, a taskmaster, a bean counter, or do you think of Jesus? The thing is, when God showed up in the person of Jesus and began interacting with his people, the religious leaders, they didn't like him. They didn't like him. He, he wasn't anything like what they imagined God to be. For them, God was all about rule-keeping, rewarding, rewarding the righteous and punishing the unrighteous. If you obeyed his rules, then you're awesome. Things went well for you. God was kind to you. But if you tr- transgressed any of the rules, then watch out, because God was going to get you somehow, some way. That was their image of God. That is what their God was like. That's why in our reading from the gospel today, they're so bothered by Jesus' habit of eating with tax collectors and sinners. Anybody a fan of tax collectors? Anybody a tax collector here? Wouldn't you be mad if you were sitting, if you were sitting over here and Jesus was eating with them? Come on, people. No, but here he is. He's eating with tax collectors. He's eating with sinners. After all, Jesus claimed to be a rabbi. People followed him around. They, listened, they were listening to him. They wanted to be near to him and learn from him about God. And so these leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. They were scandalized by what he was doing. Why would he do such a thing? And for them, the God that they knew, the God that they thought they knew, would never do it. He would never do like, something like that. And so when God showed up doing that very thing, they couldn't see that this is what God really is like. It just didn't fit. I want you to look at this with me. Let's look at this together. This is on page four of your bulletin. This is Luke chapter 15, if you've got your Bibles. Look at the very first, ber- bu- uh, first verse. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That seems like a throwaway verse, but let me stop there. And I mean, do you see what's happening? The holy God, the God of all creation, whose glory is from everlasting, there he is, and tax collectors and sinners wanted to be near him. That was the effect that God and Jesus had on people. They wanted to be near him. They were drawn to him. Isn't that something? I mean, back when God brought his people out of Egypt and he took them uh, to Mount Sinai to instruct them in how to be his people and he gave them the Ten Commandments, do you remember what the people said? You remember what the people did when, when they got there? They looked at Moses and they said, you go. You go, Moses. We don't want to do, we don't want to be near that guy. We don't know what he's going to do to us. We don't know if we can trust him. Moses, you go. They were terrified to approach the mountain of God. God was holy. He was unapproachable. They wanted someone else to go to God for them. So they let Moses do it. But here God is again. And now in Jesus, everyone wants to be near him. They feel safe somehow in the presence of God Almighty and the flesh. There's a time recorded in the fourth chapter of Mark where the disciples are all in a boat together. And like usually happens when the disciples are all in a boat together, a huge storm comes up. 
okay? And the waves are just beating against the, the boat, and the wind is just knocking the boat over. And, uh, and, and this is what it says. They're in the boat. They're at sea. The storm begins to slam into the boat. But Jesus is asleep in the stern. And Mark tells us in verse 38, they woke Jesus up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are all perishing? And so he woke up and he, and he rebuked the wind and the said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Don't miss it. They were afraid when the storm was raging. But then Jesus calmed the storm. And it says that there was a great calm. No reason to be afraid anymore. But it says in verse 41 that they were filled with even greater fear. When the storm had been stilled. So why was it that they were even more afraid after the storm had been stilled? It's because they were Jewish. And they knew that there was only one who could tell the sea what to do. Only one. They'd been out in storms before. And yeah, the storms can be scary. But what do you do when you realize that you are on a boat with God? If you're Jewish, you get very afraid. (laughs) Wait, what is this? Who is this? But as they followed him, and as they watched him, The more they were with him, the more they saw his character, the more they felt not fear, but peace. A sense of being in the presence of someone very powerful, but also deeply, deeply good. Many people today love Pope Francis. Because when they see him, they see a different kind of Christianity than what they expect. They see one that's kind, one that kisses the feet of the poor. And washes the feet of refugees. One that seems to embody the very love of God for the people of this world. And so so many people are drawn to Pope Francis. The God he shows forth. Even the tax collectors and sinners. Even the prostitutes and the drug addicts. the, The forgotten people of the world. Even they, when they see Francis doing what he's doing. Even they can imagine that maybe, just maybe, God loves them too. And it's a beautiful thing. But I don't know if I don't know how many of you uh, subscribe to Church Insider trade journals. But does anybody subscribe to those magazines? Only priests do that. They're boring. You don't need to look them up. But there are such things. There are magazines for people on the inside of the church. And guess what? Guess what you read there on the pages of these magazines? You read about religious insiders. And guess what? They don't like what Pope Francis is doing very much. It doesn't seem very papal to them. It doesn't seem very much like what a Pope should be doing. Of course, the very next thing in our reading today is the leaders, of the, the religious leaders grumbling. It says, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. 
there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus presents, as matter-of-factly as he can, this question in parable form. What man of you having 100 sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go find that sheep, go look for that sheep until you find it? And he assumes that, of course, that's exactly what each one of them would do. But it's almost certain that actually none of them would have done such a thing. They would have made a calculation. One one-hundredth loss. They would have made a calculation and they would have written off the loss. But Jesus assumes that each sheep has value, that each individual one is worth it, is worth the risk. Each one is valuable enough to leave the 99 alone in the open country, to go looking for the one that is lost. That's how God's math works. He doesn't want to suffer even the loss of one sheep because each one, each person has unsurpassable worth. And so he goes, leaving the 99 to find the one. And when he finds it, finds the lost sheep, he rejoices. He throws a party. Jesus says, that's what it's like in heaven when just one person repents and is rescued. What's it like when millions do it? Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I've heard this at least a dozen times over the years. Have you ever heard someone say, about this point in the sermon that that when the shepherd found the wayward sheep, what the shepherd would do is break one of its legs and then lay it on its shoulder. Anybody ever heard that? Nobody's ever heard that. Some people have heard this. Some people have heard this. Okay. Well, the shepherd would break one of the legs of the sheep that wandered off so that it couldn't wander off again. And then the shepherd would carry it on its shoulder until it was healed. Well, let me tell you something about that. It's not true. Okay. So wipe that image from your mind. That's not what a good shepherd is like. First of all, it's not in the parable as Jesus told it at all. There's no evidence that there's a missing verse in the Bible that that somebody's cut out at some point. Jesus doesn't say, and then he finds it and puts it on, breaks its leg and then puts it on its shoulder. No, this is something that has been inserted by people that really want to make sure that people that are wayward get punished somehow, some way. (laughs) But there's no hint of this happening in the parable that Jesus tells it. There's rejoicing, but there's no leg breaking. And second of all, who was broken so his sheep might live? The shepherd himself laid down his life for his sheep and allowed himself to be broken on the cross. He doesn't break us. He's broken for us. Plus, it ruins the whole point of the parable, which is restoration and healing. The Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling because Jesus is is hanging out with sinners. And Jesus tells this parable to show them what God's heart is like, that God's heart wants to rescue sinners, to gather the lost and rejoice over them. To add this, to add the breaking of a leg, is to change the whole message of this parable and make it not a parable about restoration, but a parable about punishment. And the thing is, the Pharisees would have loved that version a lot more. Don't, don't you mean you break the leg, Jesus? No, that's, that's something we could go for. Does that make sense? It simply doesn't fit with the parable, with the point that Jesus was making. Plus, I wonder if Jesus had this passage from Ezekiel in mind when he confronted the religious leaders of the day. This is from the 34th chapter of the prophet Ezekiel. 
It says this, the word of the Lord came to me, says the prophet. And then he says, quote, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, this is to the religious leaders, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. He's taking, he, he, he's taking the religious leaders to task. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered off over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And so, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. He doesn't say I'm going to injure them. He says I'm going to bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong, the shepherds, I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. That was a long passage. Was Jesus, who tells us he's the good shepherd, was he fulfilling that prophecy right then and there that day? And they all missed it. The Pharisees would rather see the tax collectors and sinners punished. But isn't it interesting that God's anger isn't directed at the sinners? In this Ezekiel passage, his anger is all directed at people like me. The religious leaders. People who haven't been trustworthy shepherds. Hopefully that's not me. Hopefully I'm trustworthy. I'm trying to be God. Please have mercy on me. All right, let me, re- let me turn to the second parable that Jesus tells us today about the woman who lost one of her silver coins. In this parable, Jesus tells us that a woman who lost one of her coins did everything she could to find her coin. She lit, she lit the lamp She swept the whole house. She searched diligently and never gave up until she found it. You know what that tells us about God's heart for the lost? It tells us that he'll stop at nothing to rescue them. He'll stop at nothing to find them. He'll stop at nothing to find and rescue us. Jesus doesn't say that the woman put in a good effort and then just chalked it up to bad luck. He says that she searched diligently until she found it. And then when she found it, she threw a party, invited the whole community, all her friends over to rejoice with her. Because again, there is joy before the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. Let me close with this thought. Because the truth is, we're all the lost sheep and the lost lost coin. It would be easy for us to be like the Pharisees and think that it's really only the tax collectors. 
And we know that they're lost, but it's only the tax collectors and the sinners with a big capital S that Jesus is talking about here. But it's not true. We'd be wrong. The Pharisees, as we see time and time again in the Gospels, the Pharisees are sinners too, in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. And if they're sinners and need God's mercy and forgiveness, then we're sinners who need God's mercy and forgiveness. Each one of us here, we're all lost sheep in this parable. We're all the lost coin. We're all the lost child. These parables are about you and about me. We just got back from Disney. We love to go to Disney. Happiest place on earth, you know. But on our first trip, it was, it was all so new and so big, and we'd never been there before. Gray was about seven or eight, and we'd just gotten off this ride in uh, Adventureland, and we were gathering all of our kids and getting our little, littlest one, two of them, into strollers. And then, uh, when we were ready to push off to the next ride, we looked around and we realized, no Gray. We couldn't find him. He wasn't anywhere. He'd wandered off. There's so much to do, so many distractions. Something had caught his eye, and boom, he was gone that fast. We had no idea where he was. And so the, the next thing we did is we panicked. We panicked, and we started look, calling for him frantically, looking for Greg Gray, calling out and everything else, yelling his name. We checked the bathrooms. We checked the nearby t- uh, rides. We checked the shops. We looked everywhere. We couldn't find him. And so we found a Disney cast member. That's what they call people that work at Disney. And we told her that we'd lost our child. We couldn't find him anywhere. And she calmly asked us to describe him. And then she got on a radio and she called in a Signal 70. This is, this is insider Disney code for a child has been lost. Now, if they find the child, they say a Signal 70. The, the, they tell the child that the parent has been lost because they don't want the child to feel like they're lost. It's kind of cool. Anyway, we've got a lost parent. We've got a lost parent. Even though the kid's crying. Isn't that sweet? I love Disney. I, you know, some people hate it. Some people think it's of the devil. I love it, Disney. It's great. <laughs> she called in a Signal 70, code for a lost child, and that began a process of alerting all the nearby Disney cast members to begin looking for a child who was walk, walking around without his parents. And you could tell that they trained for this all the time because they, they began this very, I mean, you could almost watch it radiate out as people got the news, okay, and, and they, would, they usually staffed the rides with, with two or three attendants at the front, and one of them began, just left the, left the ride and started looking around. It's awesome. I love Disney. All right, anyway, that, that's my little, they pay me to, um, to advertise Disney at church. Uh, anyway, um, they, they, anyway, they were looking for him everywhere, looking for our lost child. Only about 10 minutes later, after they started looking, that we were reunited with our little boy. Now, can you imagine anything worse than losing a child? Than thinking or knowing that your child has been taken away, abducted, and now is lost or captive. When would you stop looking? When would you decide to give up. We were terrified about Gray for, for those few minutes. We were desperate to find our little boy. We would do anything to get him back. We'd look everywhere and never stop looking until we found him. And think of how imperfect I am as a father. Think about how imperfect my love is for my children. And then think about how perfect God's love is for us. 
I mean, if God is our perfect father, and he is, if God is our perfect father, when would he stop looking? What lengths would be too far for him to go to rescue his lost child? If you can't imagine stopping, if you would stop at nothing, think about God's fatherly heart. In Isaiah chapter 49, God says this, Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Then he says, even those may forget. But then he says this, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He would stop at nothing. No length would be too far. In fact, he would come himself and endure all types of suffering. He would do anything and everything to save his child. That is what our God is like. And isn't that what we see in Jesus? Isn't that what he is doing? Sharing his table with tax collectors and sinners. Wasn't he rescuing them? Seeking them? Bringing them in? And isn't that what he did as he suffered death on the cross? Stretching out his arms of love to draw everyone in. I love that hymn that we sing. The king of love my shepherd is. And I especially love that line that says, Perverse and foolish oft I've strayed. And yet in love he sought me. And on his shoulders gently laid. And home rejoicing brought me. That is the God we worship. That is the God we proclaim. This is his heart. Is he searching for you this morning? In this moment, right here, right now, is God calling you? I mean, maybe you're not totally lost. You're here on church. You're here at church on Sunday morning in Rosemary Beach. You ought to be at the beach. No, you ought to be in here. Is God searching for you? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do stray from you so often. We wander away, distracted by so many things. And we give our hearts away so easily to the promises of this world. And yet, in Jesus, you have revealed yourself as a good shepherd, the good shepherd, who seeks us out and rejoices to bring us home. Would you find us this morning? Wherever we are, would you find us and lay us on your shoulders and let us feel your joy, the joy of heaven as you bring us home. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.